From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 160, and today I am joined by Norm Wilner, who you all know from past episodes, but also he's the head film writer at Now Magazine and has his own podcast, Someone Else's Movie. And we're going to sit down through isolation and watch a film together, but kind of apart. You'll see. All right, so I'm sitting down uh, through the lens of COVID with Mr. Norm <laughs> Wilner. And we're watching It Chapter 2. Which is nice, because we watched It Chapter 1 together. I had this, it's my weird black hole is that these films screen just before TIFF starts, and inevitably I'm busy, so I never get to see them. Otherwise, I can never find movies that Norm has never seen. (laughs) It's not, I mean, it's just an occupational hazard. There's bound to be a few once all this is over. It's true. Oh, that is true. Uh, So what? Oh, that's a, that's a whole other conversation we can have uh, in the later part of this because I'm curious about that. You must be getting streamers though, and stuff sent to you. Stuff is coming out um, right now. We're in this weird catch-up period where no new films are coming out, but all the stuff that was just in theaters is being shoved onto VOD. So uh, Universal just announced that they're releasing Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is this amazing uh, American independent film. Won a prize at Sundance. Won a prize at Berlin. Uh, from Eliza Hittman, who made Beach Rats, which is also great. And uh, it was supposed to open in Toronto on the 20th of March. It opened in the States the week before, and then everything shut down, and Universal just pulled it. And so they just announced this morning that it's coming out on Friday, straight to VOD, doing the same $20 for 48-hour rental package that they're doing. This This new way of actually putting stuff out on their terms. I think Universal had always wanted to do something like this, with new releases, with brand new theatrical releases, make them available on a home platform that they control. So you don't own it, you just rent it. Yeah, I mean, they're really taking advantage of this time to really do experiments, aren't they? Yeah, we're going to find out what people like, right? I mean, Bloodshot just came out something like 10 days after it was released in theaters. The fastest turnaround was The Hunt, which was a week from Friday the 13th opening theatrically to Friday the 20th being available on VOD. But yeah, I mean, you've got a movie coming out now that's pivoting entirely to VOD. We're doing the same thing. Yeah. And part, I mean, we're a smaller movie. So for us, it was just like, we just had, we, Cineplex had basically told us we will honor our theatrical promise to you, but we don't know when. And I was like, well, I, I'm a firm believer of let's control what we can control. And, uh, and the nice thing was we had kind of started our PR and press engine for the movie. So it's like, and we were able to retain most of that. So it's like, let's just take advantage of it. And, uh, and get it out there. And this is a good time. I think that movie in particular, this is a good time for it to come out. People need a movie like that at home. Yeah. I mean, I, well, you know, I liked it. We talked about it before. It's, it's just really sweet, surprisingly kind of gentle genre movie where there's maybe one special effect and the whole thing is just about people. Yeah. I like that. Oh, <laughs> thanks. We like it too. I need people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but so it, so we, so you, I mean, obviously, you know, lots about it, I'm sure. Um, uh, I read the book. I mean, so I know where it's going to go. Uh, as with the first one, the structure is pretty much guaranteed, right? I mean, it has to be the other half of the book that, that they didn't film the first time through. Yeah. But what's interesting, there is some interesting thing. Like I will say without giving anything away, like the first scene you're going to, it's not from the book. Oh, okay. There is some, there are some elements that, that they've kind of, uh, I guess dramaturged and created their own uh, ideas around them. They, I will say chapter two takes a lot without spoiling anything takes. Uh, so you've already seen it. 
I have seen it. I'm sorry, Norm. Oh no, no. I, that's this is actually the I think the first time, right? Because like, you hadn't seen the first it when we watched it. Yeah, I'd seen it then. There's no people. Oh, you had. Yeah, I think Dave Tompa hadn't seen it. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd see, I saw them both in the theaters. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay. When they first came out. Uh, so the second one does, I will say, takes a few creative liberties. Okay. Uh, so I'll be curious to see what you think about that. Yeah. They're not, see, they're not good I things. Just to, questions. Oh, no, no. Well, you're going you're gonna to find the answers very soon. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's, so it's interesting. I think like more so than the first one does. Okay. Um, anyway, I think so. Although the first one does, but just by the nature of, you know, having it takes place 30 years later. Yeah, I'm. I am really curious about that more than anything else, just because the whole thing about the book is that it is very much fixed in time. the The adult stuff taking place in the '80s is really specific to it. I mean that. Yeah, you you, you could forward you, thirty years, like the kids growing up into the '80s is from the '50s. That's fine because nothing really, not that much has changed in the world. But to go from say 1986 to 2019. That's a leap that technology has changed. The whole landscape of the world is different. So I'm yeah. really curious. Yeah. And you know what? To, to that point, now that I think about it, I think the liberties they take kind of factor into that. And so maybe okay. it'll, be interesting, it'll be interesting rewatching it now with that comment. Huh. Yeah. Well, we rewatched part one last night because Kate had never seen it. And I just wanted a quick refresher just to oh, see nice. how the performance all lined up. And it really struck me the second time through just how Spielbergy it is. It's really clever about that because that's not even something stranger things does you know all of its 80s riffing it, like stranger things steals the the imagery but it doesn't steal the texture and yeah. i was amazed at how uh i'm double checking to see who the score was by and now of course it's not even on the sleeve that i'm holding in front of me but uh it's not john williams but it comes really close to john williams in the, in the first it there's you know all those little lilts and things from the from the um the score and you know, some stuff from jerry golden's poltergeist score it's really situating itself in that that mode of storytelling. So I'm curious to see how the second film, which will presumably by definition be more mature, handles the, the acceleration to the present day. I mean, it's obviously not going to be shot like an India, uh, you know, like a Cassavetti style upgrade, but yeah, there yeah, are yeah. ways to be interesting. Like there's stuff you can do. That was definitely the thing that I was kind of surprised by, but like what made me really love the first one was just their relationship and how much they felt like a group of friends. And I just loved them all together and wanted, I just wanted to, to spend so much more time with them. So I thought they, they nailed that and they captured the friendship really, really well. Yeah. And the, uh, the fact that the actors who they've got for this one, I mean, I, I was telling you about this before. I, I was delighted and horrified to find out that when they cast it, that it was chest. I mean, I knew it was going to be Chastain because she'd worked with Andy Machete before and Sophia Lillis just looks like a baby Jessica Chastain. So that wasn't a surprise when she was cast as Bev. But then the fact that she brought on James McAvoy and Bill Hader, who are, they all work together in like one of my favorite films of the last decade, the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, where McAvoy and Chastain are a couple that are, are shattered. And over the course of this amazing two part American independent film by a guy named Ned Benson, they find a way to figure out their relationship and we learn about it backwards and forwards. The chronology is, is different in both films and Bill Hader shows up as, as McAvoy's best friend, who's a, who's the major D at his, or the chef at his restaurant, I think. Hmm. And the three of them together is just such a bizarre combination for a horror movie after that. Yeah. They've already been as emotional as you can get. And now the idea that they're going to be running around screaming at CGI is just so weird. And then since then, um, McAvoy and, and Chastain showed up in Dark Phoenix together, although I think they maybe have one scene. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I get the feeling they like hanging out, which I think is nice, but yeah, you don't need to see Dark Phoenix. That's what, yeah, I kind of felt that way. I'll probably see it when it drops on, on, on whatever free streaming service it'll end up on eventually. Yeah, now Netflix will have it, or Disney Channel might even, Disney Plus. They're, oh, yeah, they might now. There's now, right? Yeah. Yeah, it will be theirs now. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I don't want to say too much more because then I'll just ruin stuff. Okay. There'll be so much more to talk about after. No, I'll strap in and I'll meet you on the other side. All right. This is weird. This, this remote thing is really fascinating and strange. It is weird for this podcast in particular. Yeah, but we'll see how we'll, it goes. But we'll make it work. Okay. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Uh, all right. So uh, we don't need to pretend we just finished it. We had a bit of a gap. Did you watch it after we spoke last night or did you watch it? Today? I did. I watched it last night. Yeah. All right. And what did you think? It's, 
I tried so hard to like it. It was oh, so me too. It was so weirdly frustrating. It is like it's not bad exactly, but it's mm-hmm. just the tone is completely wrong based on the movie I just saw, based on the first one. That's just it. Uh, it's interesting because um I went into it going, I think I don't remember disliking it as much as I did when I was watching it last night. And I, then I was thinking as I was watching, it, I was like, oh, Norm had the same experience I did because I think I rewatched the first one right before I went into the second one. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, we, had, we had at least had the same viewing experience our initial times. I would think so, yeah. With, with me, it was just, it really, it's really weird, right? Because what it does is it puts the decision to shoot the first movie as only the kids. I don't know how I'm going to articulate this. It's a huge mistake once you see the second half. It works great the first time because it's a linear story about these kids and a monster. Yeah, and it's a kind of age story. Yeah, and then you see this, and and because, of course, the 1990 miniseries is is cut back and forth and the book cuts back and forth and the whole point of it is how you never really grow up and you're always the kid you thought you... I mean, even, you know, I'm 51 now and I'm pretty sure I'm still 12. It's, yeah. It never goes away, right? Like your sense of self is formed at that point. And so the story of the adults coming back to Derry and forcing themselves to confront who they were, especially the whole device of the memories flooding back and having been repressed for 27 years, that's really interesting, but not this way. No. Uh, this execution with the flashbacks, which are a terrible idea structurally. And, and the de-aging is so noticeable if you've just watched the first one. Like Finn Wolfhard... The kid that plays yeah, yeah. Eddie, there's a couple of them that you don't really notice. They're fine, but there's three yeah, of them Jimmy that you're Lee like. Yeah, looks okay. But the one, the the young Eddie, uh, the Finn Wolfhard, like they have aged so much that whatever they did to them, it looks, it looks, it's terrible. Well, it looked for me like it looked like they were trying to squish Wolfhard down. Like Wolfhard clearly grew a foot, yeah, and they can't figure it out. Uh, Jaden Lieberherr looked okay. Sophia Lillis still pretty much looks like herself. Yeah, uh, it's just like yep. minor cosmetic tweaking. The taller ones come off okay, but yeah, um, Eddie and and uh, and Richie, and uh, there were a couple of shots of the young Ben where he looked really, really smooth. Like they, that, and that's what it, it's almost too out. smooth. Like they were too clean or something. Yeah, it's just that uh, uncanny valley effect. Yeah, and the whole it just feels like what I kept on feeling the whole time was that the first movie just has this innate ability to just terrify me through simple measures where this one just felt like it was just trying so hard to make everything terrifying by just adding stuff to it. Like everything, yeah. even when they get to like Stan's head coming out of the fridge and it's like, we have to turn it into a creature because everything has to like have yeah. legs popping out of it and then crawling and screaming at you. Yeah. But, and specifically to turn it into the spider head from the thing right down to Bill Hader saying, you got to be fucking kidding the same way uh, Keith David did. What is that for? Like, who is that for if not for movie nerds that, that those kids probably saw the thing, but that's not the reaction that you have in a world where the thing exists. And if it didn't exist, then why is that scene happening at all? It just, it's so odd. That scene, um, the, the, the thing I was going to start off with is it's so weirdly self-congratulatory, this movie. The first one isn't. The first one is just a simple Spielberg riff telling that story in a specific way that you can respond to sort of stealing the form of a Spielberg movie and, and scaring people with it. And that worked really well. This one starts off by, Oh, you know, we're making movies and Peter Bogdanovich is directing a film. Yeah. And uh, no, and everybody's got a problem with the ending because we all know that the biggest problem with it is the ending that you can't, the, the original version could not have used with the child orgy. You just, yeah. that doesn't work. And so there's this runner throughout the film about how the ending isn't very good and how endings are a problem for Bill. But then you get Stephen King showing up as the pawn shop guy saying, I didn't like endings. It's like, come on, what, who are these jokes for? This is like, oh, look at us. We managed to make an it movie where the ending isn't going to tank. And the ending's fine. I mean, it is a decent way out. Yeah. But I, that's so irrelevant to the movie. It's just 10 minutes of back slapping. For what? For for to whom are they uh, are they taking this victory lap? For him? yeah, 
Yeah, I don't get it. And then and I think you I think that Bill Hader quote that you threw out is a perfect way to describe most of this movie is like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Like every single <laughs> turn along the way, there's just so many moments like that. Bill Hader is the shining star of this movie for me. He was great. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't really fault any of the actors. They're all doing the best they can. There is this weird sense that just maybe it's just the glasses or that Bill Hader bothered to get the timing right with Finn Wolfhard, but it's really hard to recognize any of the kids in these in these adult actors. I mean, Jessica Chastain is the obvious choice for for Bev, and she's fine. She's like it's a good performance, but there's not a lot of continuity between her and Sophia Lillis. There's almost nothing between Jaden Lieberherr and, and James McAvoy. It was really jarring. Jay Ryan, who's playing um, who's playing Ben, has the advantage of being completely different. He yeah. has reinvented himself. And there's that little switch at the beginning where they introduce a beefy blonde haired guy uh, as though that's Ben. And then they pivot to the real Ben taking the call. Which but is anyone funny. who's read the book knows that that's what happens to Ben, right? Right. But it's a nice cheat for the people who haven't. Sure. That's true. I guess um, the only, yeah. And then, and then you've all got like, he's even the Mike character. Uh, it was interesting because they give uh, Ben that st- storyline in the first one of him being in the library all the time i thought maybe they were going to change it and have ben be the librarian in the sequel as opposed to giving it to mike because mike has a totally different backstory in the first one too he's like the son of a butcher as opposed to uh you know his his other storyline but they you know yeah james mcavoy outside of like the forced stutter like those two just don't feel like the same character yeah, James Ransom comes close as Eddie, as the adult Eddie, because he's got the twitchiness and the, and the physicality. And the physicality, yeah. But yeah. at the same time, those roles are still like Ben, and uh, Ben never gets to be more than the lovesick guy who forces himself to be brave. Stanley barely exists in this film, and he gets his decency retroactively through that letter. Eddie really needs more time to be explored if they're going to give him the story that he has where his wife more or less is his mother in well, a really weird clumsy way and and uh did you know that it's the same actress playing both parts i assumed it was yeah, yeah. the second i saw her just because the padding in her on her is so obvious in the first film yeah that she's obviously not that. and then richie's storyline which is you know new for this it wasn't his uh, you know his repressed homosexuality or whatever we're supposed to get from that is not in the books at all no uh the closest it comes to dealing with anything like that is in the is in the story that opens part two the gay bashing that that was based on an actual occurrence an actual event but here's what's fascinating to me so they have that scene with xavier dolan because a canadian canadian filmmaker shout out uh that's not from the books either uh, that whole gay bash, I don't think. I, I mean, I, it's been a long time since I've read the books. I don't remember that it, in the books. It is in there, but it's in there. Sorry, I'm going to fix my episode. But the thing it's, it's in there peripherally. It's, um, it's a reference to, I want to get this right. I think the guy's name was Charlie Howard. Uh, yes, who was killed in Maine in uh, 1984 in Bangor, where where King lived and he folded it into the book as an example of the awful things that happened in Derry. So it's not given it, it's given a very small space in the book, but it is there. It's sort of a list of all the, the the horrible incidents that happened because the townspeople are poisoned by Pennywise. But here's what I thought was interesting. Like if you're going to go, here's the thing, the book actually has a storyline in it that they didn't use that actually works into the, the repressed homosexuality thing, which is that, I don't even remember, but in there's a chapter from when in their youth where uh, Henry Bowers uh, has gets like a blowjob from the Patrick Hogstetter character, like in the dump. Yes, like, I remember that because that I was remember their, that was their their bullying was driven by the fact that they were secretly they were closeted and self loathing. Yeah, and I remember that and that because I read this book when I was I don't know twelve or thirteen or fourteen, and that really I mean that in the orgy scene obviously at the end really like cemented itself into my my brain as a, as a young kid reading that and i'm just like that exists from the source material why not use that it's not anything more like if anything there's more there's more nuance from that and there's more depth that you give henry bowers as opposed to just being this chuckling mustache twirling psychotic villain yeah i don't think you could do it now though i i think if the if you have if you have a any hint of homophobia, it has to be commented on, right? So if you're making the villains closeted gays, that's hateful. Now, now like, yeah, that yeah. would read as hateful unless you're 
doing it from their perspective and it's about how they they're driven to this by the fact that they can't come out but if you but, set that in the 80s that's a harder sell right yeah no that's fair but i mean i guess the way to do it is by because they're targeting richie because they hate themselves sure but anyway. then you need the self-knowledge, which they don't possess. Or else but even that, it's like, that feels like an, like, like all of a sudden we get to see that flashback of, of Richie at, you know, playing video games with that other kid. And they call him like that. It's like, where was any hint of that in the first movie? Like, it just feels yeah. like that was tacked on so hard. Like there's no even glimpse of that concept in the first movie. And that's what bothered me about like all these. And the thing too, that I, thought was a missed opportunity in the first one. The thing I always loved reading the book as a kid was the clubhouse that Ben had built that was like underground in the forest. And it's just like all of a sudden, I mean, they use it in the sequel, but it's like that just randomly wasn't there as part of the first story where that would have happened in the middle of the story. Yeah. It felt like they cut it and then tried to save it. Yeah, I guess. but it, just felt- it, it, it isn't in the deleted scenes on the first movie because I watched all of those. Just, and no, Jeff same. Townsend is in so many of those. No, I, it I just, was just to make it back it at just, all in this. Yeah, it just felt like all of these scenes of the kids in the second one, it's just like we missed half of a movie and all this, it just feels like nothing. There just doesn't, I think you said it already, but it doesn't feel like there's a through line. And it feels like this yeah. one's just trying to really go sci-fi with it. And it's like almost like adding midichlorians to it and explaining the magic. And it's like, oh, don't do that. Just let it be terrifying. You know, the thing that always bothered me in the book, too, and I guess they're being, you know, they're being respectful of the source material, but the whole ritual of Chud thing just felt like mumbo jumbo to me. Yeah, it's harder to see it than it is to read about it, right? And especially when it boils down to people just shouting, turn light into dark, which would not have been magic words in the original language. It's just, it's a really strange way of selling that big climax where, if part of it is that you have to face him down and ultimately the whole movie is about coming to terms with your childhood trauma. Um, the way they do it is so clumsy and textual rather than subtextual. How they beat it is by name calling and bullying him. It's the weirdest message to throw into a movie about like getting over your childhood past is to make fun of it or to like, just make fun of somebody and you can defeat them. That's yeah, a weird I mean, ass message. It's it is the, like the psychological thing makes sense, taking away the power of the of the of the. Sorry, I'm playing with my headphone by mistake. My microphone. It's like that thing about taking the bully's power away by mocking him, which is fine, except that this is a giant spider clown monster that's just murdered a guy in front of you. It, it seems weird. It seems and, like a really big leap, although. It was a pretty big leap in the book when all of this stuff was working before as well, right? It's all about the power of faith and the power of self-embiggenment, but it doesn't play. And it didn't, well, it didn't feel like it was set up or they discovered it in any meaningful way. It just felt like all of a sudden it was there and yeah. they just jumped into it. It, wasn't, it didn't feel like they earned it is the problem. Yeah. Well, somebody just blurts out, we have to make him small, right? That's actually right. dialogue. Jessica Chastain which, does it. How do you... Yeah. Yeah, and how do you make how do you reach that conclusion? Uh, anything that what is it? It has to obey the the rules of its physical form or something. I mean, I don't think you can make the argument that physics is going to save the day when you're dealing with an extra dimensional monster. And how do physics make something physically small by name calling it? It makes something emotionally smaller. Sure, I guess that was the idea. Is that if you make it emo because it's a magical creature, if you make it, it and it feels emotionally big because its ego is inflated by dry, bringing its emo ego small it shrinks it i don't now my head hurts it's yeah it's a bit of a leap there is a great moment in the book where i remember this really vividly where king briefly gives us its perspective and it's confronted with the existential terror of understanding that it might die that it finally understands that it's in danger and that's it's just a couple of paragraphs but it's this really great kind of reverse lovecraftian thing where all of a sudden this this force that we've never been able to understand or even quantify that the book itself has been struggling to contain. It suddenly experiences doubt and terror. And it's this great moment in the novel where you're forced inside its head. And there's just no way to do that in this movie after it's just, you know, after we've just watched Pennywise unhinge its entire skull and dead like Richie, you just, you can't come back to that. So instead, they have to trust that Bill Skarsgård can sell it. And he tries really hard. He does. He's great. 
He does his best. Yeah, but he's still I lo- buried under CG at that point. God, I love that moment when uh, when when Bill Hader gets cut off saying "Yippee ki mother," and then uh, and then he just like his face just goes <laughs> pure deadlight. That made me laugh, and yeah. I'm like, is that supposed to make me laugh? Because that's what it does. It's so good. I think it's supposed to be horrifying, but Hader plays it for comedy. I mean, I think he it's knows so that good. It's funny. He's slightly in a different movie, but I'm okay with that because I, I want to be in the movie that Bill Hader's in. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, there, he can't even make the Chinese, food, the Chinese restaurant sequence work. And that should work because in the book, it's horrifying, right? I kept waiting for the fortune cookies because that's so imprinted in my head. Yeah. I will say I did like the, forever. I, I like the camaraderie in that scene and like, and like the jovialness of it. But then the ending of it doesn't quite land. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It, well, it needs to turn to terror, right? It needs to be horrifying because it's the moment where the stakes become real for everybody because they don't know stanley's dead yet all they know is they've been called back and they're having these weird memory issues and just when it needs to come together it just turns into a cg like creature fest and that why would these adults be frightened by weird little chicken monsters that's the whole thing just felt like a cgi monster fest where it's just like hey the the first movie made a a billion dollars now let's just throw money at this one to make it scarier by throwing money in. And it's like, no, that's not what made the first one work actually. Yeah. And you, you didn't need, see, didn't no, need to make it half an hour longer. You didn't need to like, just put like, just add creepy arms and shit to everything. <laughs> yeah. But you can see the impulse, right? They just, it's not a failure of, of storytelling as much as it's a failure of nerve at the production point, right? We have to do all the things that the first movie did because that's what people want. Except the whole point of chapter two is that it's a different situation. It's a different world. It's, you know, it's 27 years later and these people have changed and they have to go back to who they were. If you keep reminding us of who they were and trying to establish that continuity in, in movement and gesture, you know, the way it cuts between past and present, which is kind of cool, but it works against the story. It works against the performances. I think, you know, give us one tiny flashback of those younger kids, but strand us in the present and make us understand that these people are trying really hard to reconnect to that rather than just constantly rippling back and forth. Yeah, just the, do what you did with the opening. Show us the opening the way they did and then get us into the present. That's all we need. Yeah. Because the stuff that was scary in the first one was just Skarsgård being Skarsgård and doing his thing. Like even there's a, a funny story I read about on set how – uh Bill Hader asked uh, Bill Skarsgård, it's like, what, what editing software they used to do that thing with his eyes, where his eyes look in different directions. Oh, yeah. And in character and in makeup, he did it a lot because that's him. He can do that. Yeah. He just did it in front of him and said, what, this? And Bill Hader freaked the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was on camera somewhere. Because I can just picture like Hader casually asking and then that happening. Yeah, I, and I, I, I like that because it comes back down to the simple performance. Like, it's just about the actors. It's about, I mean, it's about a weird talent, but it's about things you can do on set that don't require additional stuff. Although yeah. I will say, watching the first one again, some of the things they did with framing Skarsgård, like sort of the, there's that one scene where he starts dancing, but his head is locked still, and the rest of his body is in motion. And it's, it's obviously a CG trick but it's unnerving in a way that really works. It's great. Film. And, and again, Hater leans into it. He does that fake dance. He, he does that when they're looking at the, their old hideout. He's like, remember that dance he did? Yes, <laughs> he's, he kills me in this movie. There was, I was just going to mention another moment of him that I loved and it escaped me. Alas. Oh, I mean, he kind of throw, and that's, I mean, Bill Hader is like the voice of the audience in this movie. There's that moment too, where uh, where Mike is like, we got to split up and find our artifacts. He's like, Are you fucking crazy? That's the stupidest idea. And it's like, yeah. yeah, that's what. And I guess they're just saying, well, the audience is going to say that, so we need to say it too. But it's like, yeah, but the audience is still saying that. Yeah, and it's, they're not wrong. I mean, the artifacts. It never really. They never really explain what the artifacts are. It's and just where does it gets thrown around? And where does the rule come from that they have to gather them separately? Hmm. And that they would all know what they were when you know, just just say out loud, it's got to be something important to you. That's all it is. But it is ultimately, yeah, it's an excuse for them to wander off by themselves and get scared, uh, which happened in the first movie when they all got split up inside the Nebel house. But that happened organically this time. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't work this time because it's basically it's the second act of the movie where you're going to kill an hour watching these individual nightmare sequences that will not resolve into anything because they all have to get together to fight the monster. They just told us. No, it's funny. It's like, I I remember when we were, when we were all sitting down watching the first movie together 
and uh, and we were go- they were going through that sequence. It's in the first movie where it's like one by one. We all we had to watch them all see it for the first time. And yeah. I think it was I think it was Tampa. Or we were watching, going, oh, do we get? Because he was unnerved by it, and it was he he didn't like it because he was getting scared by each one. And he's like, oh, we're we gonna do this every with every single goddamn kid. <laughs> but it's the same with this. Like you know, you're just like, ugh, checklist, checklist. Okay, now we've done Richie. All right, now we've done Bev. And it just again, it's like there's like, as a filmmaker who's an editor, there's a there's no reason this movie had to be as long as it was. Yeah. I think it could have come in at the same length as the previous one, two and a quarter, and it would have been much stronger. It could still probably use a trim, but it, I mean, even if you just lifted out the stuff with the, the flashbacks, you'd save what, 40 minutes? Yeah. And Manchetti says there's a four hour version out there. It's like, God. Of, of just the second film. Yeah. I'm like, <sighs> well, thank God. It's like somebody stopped that. Oh, man. And I was wrong, by the way. There are four actors from Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby in there. I, I didn't know Jess Wexler was in there as. Uh, as uh, Bill's wife, who only has one scene and surely figured in more. In, I mean, in the novel, she comes with him to Derry and ends up in a coma. Oh, and thank uh, God they didn't do that storyline. That was the worst well. part of the miniseries. Oh, that's right. And he rides the bicycle to make her wake up again. That's, that's the the novel anyway. And I, I mean, yeah, no, it's not necessary, but it's just like Jess Wexler's fantastic. And she's got three minutes in this movie. And it's really disappointing to me that she doesn't come back because I love her. She's fun. Uh, yeah. She played Chastain's sister in Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, apparently they're best friends in real life too. They are, yeah. They went to school together or something, and uh, and they turn up in each other's work a lot. And it's it's great because it's a, just a lovely on screen relationship. And here, I mean, she shows up, you're like, oh my god, it's just Wexler, and then she's gone. And it just bugs me that she was in town and I didn't get to say hi. Yeah. More than anything else, that's the biggest waste of, of it. Chapter two is that all these great people were in Toronto and nobody came to my podcast. Bastards. I'm, I know. I'm personally upset by this, although. Um, <laughs> I'm not actually that upset by it. I was never going to get those guys, but they're all, they're all really talented and it is disappointing to watch them not be challenged with the exception of hater, who I think does do more um, because Richie has more of a story because Richie has more stuff to hide. That just makes him more interesting. I think as a screen presence. That's just it. And he's the comic relief, which the film desperately needs. Cause it's like you said, it's taking itself far too seriously in terms of what it's trying to do and its importance. There's, I mean, there is a couple little moments I like. I love the moment when uh, uh, Eddie gets stabbed in the face, and he's just like yes. bewildered by it. It's like, what? Why would you do? And he's trying to. And but it's yeah. also what you get. What's, what the actor's doing that's really good is because of all this shit that's been going down. Is what I'm getting on his face is that he's trying to figure out if this is real or not. <laughs> yeah, you can see it, right? You can see the processing, which is really great for a movie like this. Uh, as opposed to oh sir go ahead so no go ahead i was gonna say as opposed to the spider head sequence where it's so clearly an illusion but it's also something everybody has to deal with right whether it's and that that is a problem they keep saying it's not real it's not real and yet we are watching pennywise bite children's faces off so he has power and physical presence but it's something that the movie never really resolves Is, is he casting all these illusions or are they actually happening? Because the whole thing, like the blood in the first movie that's persistent, even though the adults can't see it, that seems to suggest that the stuff that is happening is real. Well, that's just it. And even the, uh, the sequence in the, uh, the fun house where he kills that kid in front of Bill is like, did he really, Yeah. did he really kill that kid? Or was that just a figment of his imagination? I yeah. couldn't tell. And it's weird that that scene ends the way it does without a clear answer because he all just of a walks sudden, out. he's yeah. like, Oh, he killed the kid in front of me. It's like, yeah. you, you, did you verify that? But when it happens, right, the whole, the whole mirror wall fills up with blood. And then there's another shot of James McAvoy in a clean space as though the nightmare has just ended. So it feels like it was all just a lure and it wasn't real, but then he goes running around telling everybody he saw a child die. Yeah. It's, it's like if you've got a two and a three quarter hour movie, you can correct, you can clarify things. You can give me the extra beat that tells me what's happening, that what's real and what isn't. Well, and the other thing that bothered me a little bit was with the opening scene with the, the Xavier Dolan scene is that we're led to believe that it feeds off children because they have the most fear. It's the Monsters, right. Inc. thing. They're the strongest fear. But it's like clearly and, and maybe it's to set us up that we're telling an adult story now. But it's like he's clearly, you know, feeding off this guy who is not a child. Uh, yeah, but I guess and he stalks children otherwise throughout the the, night, the the modern day sequence. 
Yeah, so it was like that just feels that whole opening feels so out of place to me. It does. Uh, it does. I just don't get what they were going for in that sequence. It feels like it's out of place for the story it's telling unless and because it doesn't even feel like it's it's necessarily setting up the Richie story, which is the only thing I can understand it doing. Uh it's yeah. not like playing into but, like it and children. It's just I don't know, I don't get it. No, I think it's there because it was part of the book. I think there's a there's a version of this film. Maybe it is the four hour cut that just includes every incident and every secondary thing. Plus they come back to the carnival later in the movie. So at least the setting is established, but there's no there's no reason for it. The the same thing with, with Richie's Paul Bunyan hallucination. It makes no sense. No. Uh, within the moment. I mean, it is, it's scary, but we've also never seen Pennywise in broad daylight. We've never seen any of this stuff that's happening, happen at that scale, at a public scale. Cause there's that great distressing moment before the statue starts running around where Pennywise starts speaking to Richie. And there's that great shot where lined up behind him is everyone who is at the park standing absolutely still and starting to sway, which is just this great unnerving image that suggests that Pennywise has greater control than he does because in the end, none of it happened and yeah. nobody was involved and it was just an illusion. And then they just throw this giant CGI Paul Bunyan at us, which is not scary. It's just like yeah. Ugh, another one of these things. You know what an opening that yeah, I would have loved seeing? I would have loved actually because in the book, I mean, they kind of make allusion to it. Ben in the first movie does when he's showing all the research he did and like how it's been around for hundreds of years and all these old yeah, pictures. Yeah. I would have rather seen like a sequence that takes place a hundred years ago or 150 years ago of like the first iteration of it. And then leading into like kind of doing almost like a supercut of showing us like moments of it that he's been around for forever would have been a more yeah. interesting opening see, for me. Yeah. And once we see Skarsgård without the makeup as the, as the clown who what like the actual Pennywise who then became whatever the template for this monster is, that's that's where you do that you just introduce him and show him being normal before he gets assimilated or eaten or presumably just killed outright because it's an attractive way to get children to come play with you like there must have been a moment where the creature decided this was a good disguise yeah kind of want to see that even if it's something that's unfathomable and it's just a point of view shot of this guy being stalked at least yeah a sense of the history would not have been the worst thing well they have mentioned they might do a prequel they should not (laughs) I mean, why? It's it's great for three seconds or, or you know, a two-minute opening prologue, but that we don't need a... I mean, we get prequels. No, you don't need... Yeah. You know the reason why, though, because the first one made, like, a half a billion dollars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's I know, why. And it'll never stop. There'll be an It cinematic universe. There are... What is it? Seven movies now connected to The Conjuring at this point? Or eight? It's crazy. I mean, you can make an extension of anything if you want to. And I'm sure there's... Uh, you know, now that Warner owns the Stephen King rights or, or to you know like the character rights to pennywise i'm sure they can do this if they want to but they should not i mean, i think just the fact that the second movie is not that satisfying demonstrates that there's a a limited window for use of this thing yeah yeah it's just it's just a total it just it's really disappointing especially coming off of the first film which is just such a a unique special thing and the second one just feels like it's trying to be so many more things than it needs to be yeah, it's the sequel they would have made if there was no book, right? If there was, if they just made the first film, if it was a standalone, this would be the crappy, disappointing second picture. Yeah, like they have no source material to draw off of, so they're just making shit up. Where it's like that's not even true. You literally yeah. have like five hundred pages of source material you didn't use in the first movie. Yeah, just you know, shorter would have been so much. There's probably going to be a fan cut of some sort, like a ninety-five minute or a hundred to ten minute edit that works a lot better, but. It's just, yeah, I just kept thinking this isn't necessary. I'd love to see a version where they, where someone recuts like, because I think the two together are like five hours. Give yeah. me a three hour version of both movies combined. And I think you'll get something probably pretty decent. Yeah, I could see that. You lose all the Toronto location stuff, all the, like the flashback or the, the flashback, the, the first act of the, of the second movie where it's all just King street and, um, and Bay King and Bay people driving around past that Rogers store. I, I kind of love that. There's absolutely no attempt to make it look like anything else. No, anyone that knows Toronto is like, it's so Toronto. <laughs> yeah. And then they shot it in. Aurelia. Oh, not, oh, so. 
Port Hope, isn't it? Some of it was Port Hope. There's another city built in the end credits in the second one. Uh, but I've recognized, I recognize that location. I've oh, there's it. some, actually part of, I think I want to say some of it's actually Kitchener. Like that, oh. uh, yeah, which is where I am right now. I think like that shot where you see the the the, the lake or the river, and then they, and it's got that big like dairy uh, painted thing on the one side of the building. Oh yeah. I want to believe that's actually Kitchener. I should look it up. I could be wrong because it reminds me of a lot of the exteriors they use in Handmaid's Tale, which is Kitchener. Or, or okay. like, or not, I mean, Kitchener, Waterloo, that this general area. Uh, I feel like right. it just, it looks, I drive by that area a lot and I'm like, it, it reminds me of that. Yeah. It was just interesting because the first film does such a great job of faking it. I mean, it looks like Maine. I believed, I knew, yeah. I knew it was shot here, but there's nothing that gives away. There's no big city, anything. And it just looks like the excerpts. It's very convincing. And then this one is just like, eh. We're shooting, you know, we might as well just shoot at Pinewood where it opens in a movie studio. You might as well just use the existing movie studio where we are right now. And it's that self-referential thing where, again, it's just you don't need it. You don't need any of this stuff. It feels like the movie is both being lazy and overambitious at the same time. Yeah, that's a good which, does, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, but it, it kind of does when it comes to this movie. Yeah. Middle child syndrome or something. They're just trying. It's trying too hard with something that it shouldn't be trying that hard at. Yeah, trying to live up to its big brother. Yeah. I just, Sorry, so movie. I, I like the first one. I wanted the second one to be just as good. Yeah, same. And I went in. I went into the rewatch going, you know what? Maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Time, time will heal all wounds. It's like, nope. No, no, no. <laughs> I disliked it just as much, if not a little bit more, to the point where I'm like, why did I buy the disc? <laughs> <laughs> Probably because at one point my son will want to have watched it. And I was just like, here, it's there. Just do it. Save yourself the yeah. iTunes rental. Yeah, but uh, you don't have to be there for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He watched the miniseries with me. Um, oh, that's right. I remember. Yeah, we did. So, the, I mean... It. It is now probably the most covered movie on the podcast because there's three episodes about it individually. That's pretty good. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we did well by it. So I don't feel bad about uh, having an honest uh, impression of this one that is not necessarily uh, flattering. No, I think that's reasonable. And so where does it come down? I mean, how do you feel about the miniseries now? Because I remember it being incredibly cheesy. I have not revisited it in a while. I mean, it's, it's better than this just by the extension of a lot um yeah. but um it's still i mean the first one is so i mean the first new one obviously is so great right, right, right. and then probably just by nature of the cheesiness and the tv vibe of the the miniseries i'd say it's a close tie between the sequel and it and and that yeah, yeah, yeah. the uh, it just doesn't need i think i think the challenge is i think here's here's what it 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 does for me. I'm like, I find that the first chapter one elevates the book in a way that I was not expecting going into it. And that's what made me love it. And I think that both the mini series and the sequel could not, or part two, whatever you want to refer to it as couldn't live up to the book. Yeah, that's about right. There's just something that, escapes it you can just feel it reaching for it so many times and then falling back on the cheaper stunts because it can't grasp whatever the thing is whatever the real core of it is and it, it's no, no please yeah it's just missing the core i think that you nailed it right there i'm like it's missing its heart it doesn't know what it's about it doesn't have like a theme it's grabbing at where the first one is just about the fears are, they, the themes are just nice because it's, it's entwined with childhood and every kid goes through life feeling like a loser and feeling like they need to find their people. And when you find your people, you're, you're united. Whereas grownups, we don't, that's not the same story. Yeah. I don't know what the story is here. Well, it should be about reconnecting with who you were, right? Like reconciling yourself to the person you used to be, no matter how hard you try, you're always that person inside. There's, there's no way to fully escape that. And it, by making dairy a horror uh, like a hellmouth, it's basically about going home to fight your demons. And literally, the, 
and the sad thing is, is the material for that is all there because you've got Ben who is trying to escape his past by physically of altering himself. You've got Eddie who has married his own mother. Yeah. You've got Stanley who literally murders himself to avoid it. You've got Bev who married her father. Yeah, uh, which is a problem I don't think the film establishes or, or deals with emotionally. Just the idea that, okay, this sounds weird. I've never been in an abusive relationship and I have no, no justification for this, but narratively and dramatically, it doesn't make sense that Bev would put herself in that, would find herself in that position again. Especially had, because she gets out of it exactly the same way. It just feels too cheap as a narrative choice. Yeah, and also, uh, this isn't to, to say anything negative about Chastain. She's a fantastic actress. I also have a hard time, because she has such a strong presence, I have a hard time mm. buying her being in a relationship like that. Unless it's something like, um, what was the uh, Pretty Little Lies? Like that relationship with Nicole Kidman and uh, Skarsgård, where it's like, clearly there's this like love, hate, like sex thing to it, where they're both kind of into it and get off on the violence in a weird way. That's the only right. way that it's, relationship makes sense to me. And then he takes it too far. Yeah. And this is definitely not consensual. It's clearly, she's terrified of, of her husband and, and ultimately flees him. But the way even, it felt like, and maybe this is the sort of Spielberg shorthand that they were using in the first film where, you know, the image tells the story emotionally. This that moment where she drops her wedding ring and leaves it on the, on the fence on her way out. It's just, it's a trope. adults. Yeah. Adults don't do that. Not in 2019. You could maybe pull that off if this was set in the eighties, but all of that emotional stuff and all of those dynamics just landed so flat for me. And then because the rest of the film, she copes and manages and, and she becomes strong again she should still be processing all of these awful things that she's just escaped from. Maybe it's just because the invisible man came out a couple of weeks ago and that's all about this. And it's in my head, but just to treat it so easily and cavalierly just felt completely wrong. And because that movie's great. There's that. I love the invisible man. Yeah. I mean, the problem was that this movie puts its real estate of time into all of these like big, scary or scenes that think it wants to be scary as Mm. a the time into the character emotion and dynamic which is what made the first film great and they kind of like didn't realize that yeah it's weird and, and i think even going back and adding more scenes with the kids it's just trying to give us more of the thing that it doesn't understand it gave us the first time i mean yeah. if the first movie is this great accident of just a good cast and a strong story and no baggage this is all about making sure we see where all the luggage is like not, it's not just baggage. It's an entire, (laughs) it's a hotel cart being rolled back and forth filled with bags over and over again. Yeah. That's a poor metaphor, but I think you get it. No, I like it. I get it. I get it. (laughs) All right. I get it. So we should, we're kicking a dead horse now. Uh, (laughs) Any, uh, I will put, go ahead. Final thoughts. I was going to say that anyone who hasn't seen it or maybe even has already seen it should watch the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby to see James McAvoy, Jessica Chastain, Bill Hader, and Jess Wexler be phenomenal. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to check that out for sure. Yeah. I cannot, I cannot recommend it enough. It was like the second best American movie I saw in the two thousands, but the listeners know you recommended a very specific way to watch it, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, So this is a movie that was screened at TIFF. In 2013, I think, 2012, 2012 or 2013, in a two-part, three-and-a-quarter-hour version called Him and Her, uh, or Her and Him, it depends, because it's supposedly you can watch it in any order, but if you watch Him first and then Her, it really, really works. And it follows this couple in New York City through the separation process and the disintegration of their marriage for reasons that are gradually filled in. If you watch either version, you learn it in, in a specific order. But it's McAvoy is the husband, Justine is the wife, uh, Hader is the either the maitre d' or the chef, I can't remember, at the restaurant that McAvoy's character runs, and Wexler plays Chastain's sister. And it's just this gorgeous, beautiful, deeply sad, uh, incredibly moving drama, which was just perfect. I mean, it really is just perfect. And then uh, they sold it to the Weinstein Company at TIFF, I begged them not to. I actually, in an interview with Chastain and the filmmaker Ned Benson and their producer, uh, Cassandra Kulikundis, I, I said, like, it, it was screened here without a uh, distributor. It just came as a producer's picture. 
And I just said, like, whatever you do, don't let the Weinsteins take it. They will butcher this. This is a really gorgeous, special thing, and they'll kill it. And 24 hours later, they sold it to them, and it's just like, God damn it. And exactly what happened, exactly what I was worried would happen, happened. Um, Harvey Weinstein cut an hour and a quarter out of both films, reorganized it into a single chronological work that runs two hours and two minutes, took it to Cannes, and nobody liked it. And that was that. It never even opened theatrically in Canada. But... If you get the iTunes version, the uh, if you buy the movie on iTunes, the proper cut is available as an iTunes extra. And if you buy the American Blu-ray, it's uh, it's there on a bonus disc. But the two-hour version is the movie that people watch and go, oh, I thought you said that was great. And mm-hmm. every time I say, how long was the movie you watched? And why yeah. didn't you listen to me? Because it's, it's phenomenal. And again, just to see all of them together again. And clearly McAvoy and Chastain get along because they're both in the X-Men movie Dark Phoenix, which is, we talked about it in the opener, terrible. Uh, and neither of them particularly cares about that work, but they cared about Eleanor Rigby. And I'm really disappointed that none of that came back. Right, well, I will watch the version the way you describe when I, when I do it. Damn right. All right. We can do that as a black hole because I guarantee you a lot of people have not seen it. Oh, Maybe we should arrange that. That could be a fun group screening. Yeah, I'm in. Back when the world is up and running. Well, do you have the Do you have the American Blu-ray? I do. Of course I do. Of course you do. That's how we we'll do it. All right. I bought it. I had it brought in by mail because no one in Canada was going to release it. E1 only released the uh, two-hour cut. And only on DVD. Just okay. that's how little respect anyone has for this movie. Right. We'll make a plan to make that happen. I'm down. Very exciting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Norm, for uh, for joining me during your isolation. <laughs> Anytime. This was great. It's a nice distraction. Yeah. No, it certainly is. All right. So uh, sorry for those who uh, loved it. Chapter two. We are not in your presence, but uh, for those who loved the first one, we uh, we salute you. We're still with you. And apologize that uh, you didn't get the sequel you deserved. That's fair. All right. Thanks, Norm. No problem. Good night. Let's all Thanks for joining us for It Chapter 2. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Jeremy and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.